Yeah, one of the things, you know, Sadie mentioned the, the purple sheet on the back. We have these the six different mindsets. One of the ones we have on there is the invisible world is real. So we believe the invisible world is just as real as the visible. And we want to live our lives around that reality because Christianity at its core is a supernatural religion. It's not a moral religion. It's not a political religion. It's not a behavior religion. It's a supernatural religion. And we believe supernaturally something changes when the Holy Spirit through the power and the blood of Jesus can invade our lives and change the deepest core of our character into the kind of people we all want to be. So Christianity, of course, is a supernatural religion. Therefore, we have to, we believe there are supernatural realities, not in not in spooky ways or they may feel weird. I mean, we talk about the weird meter, um, but life is way more than just what you, s you know, see and hear and feel. And there's more going on right now than white plastic chairs and gymnasium floors and 68 degrees in the room. There's something else happening um, always. You're always living in an invisible world. So we're called to live simultaneous lives in that sense. So, hey, the word for the day is uh, misunderstood. And just to illustrate that, I uh, go to my favorite theologian, uh, Calvin, of Calvin and Hobbes fame. And here's what he says. He says, I'm a genius, but I'm a misunderstood genius. And then his tiger, Hobbes, says, what's, mister, mis what's misunderstood about you? And Calvin says, nobody thinks I'm a genius. <laughs> All right. But being misunderstood, if we're honest with it, is hard. There's been times I'm sure you've been misunderstood by people. People assume things about you they aren't, that aren't true, or they don't say th assume things about you that are true, and you feel like you've been missed, and it's not easy to be misunderstood. Um, as a follower of Jesus, it's not, easy to, it's, it's not easy when you feel misunderstood, because some that comes with the territory, because some people, they, they, they don't know what, why, why you do it, why you don't do it. There was a time... Uh, in the past, I, I was kind of in a whining mood to God. I was actually riding my bike and praying while I was riding my bike, but I had my eyes open, so I wasn't going to get hurt. But I, I actually said out loud, Jesus, I am tired of being misunderstood. And I felt like Jesus said to me right away, yeah, I know what that feels like. And I thought, oh, you do. You do know what that feels like. And what we're going to look at today, we've been doing a series from the Gospel of Mark called Seeing Jesus. And my challenge has been, my challenge to you has been to read through the Gospel of Mark. Even if you haven't, if you don't have any regular reading plan, it's 16 chapters long, just read a chapter a day and until Easter. You know, you might go through Mark a few times. But just to get a, get a good picture of who Jesus is as the Bible describes him, not as you've been told or that you think or the culture tells you. Um, and Jesus uh, was quite misunderstood by his, even his family. He experienced rejection, misunderstanding. He was, contra he was controversial. I mean, yes, he was loving and kind and all those things, but there's part of Jesus that we, sometimes we haven't seen, and I don't, you know, I think we kind of skip those parts in the Bible. We read them, but it kind of skips our hearts because we don't want to see that part of Jesus because that means that may mean his followers we have to be open to being misunderstood and rejected and through suffering. So we're going to do chapter 3 today. Go to the next slide here. And I just call this chapter, Jesus, Controversial, Confrontational, and Supernatural. And this is no man walking through the desert reading poetry, sipping wine. There's a lot of uh, 
drama and a lot of uh, intensity going on here. So what I want to do for this, in Mark chapter 3, there's basically five different kind of scenarios, scenes. And I'm just going to get a look at all five of them, and I'm just going to look at a quote from each one, straight from the text, and then kind of unpack what, what's, what's happening. Because I'm just going to show you what it is, and then we're going to think what preceded that, and what, what does this mean about Jesus, and how does that help us see Jesus more clearly. So here's the first one. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. This is, like, this is like the middle of the story, so it's kind of like joining the movie in the middle of the story. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to destroy Jesus. The first time in the Gospel of Mark, it actually says the, the lead, religious leaders wanted to destroy, to kill Jesus. Now, don't, don't say it out loud. What do you think preceded that? What do you think got them so agitated? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. The Hero, uh, supporters of Herod, Herod was a king who was... Uh, in, uh, installed by the Roman, not wanted Roman government. And so they would have been the political supporters of Rome. Here are the Pharisees who were Jews, were even colluding with like the, it's like, it's like Republicans and Democrats getting together, like unheard of. And they want to destroy Jesus. So you might think, well, what preceded that? Well, he must have said some really hurtful things to them. Maybe it was when he cleared the temple and was really angry and they just got, they got so mad, we're going to kill this guy. What do you think preceded this that got mature leaders wanting to kill this man named Jesus? What preceded this was Jesus healed somebody. It was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees had instituted this whole system of rules about why, what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, because again, the heart of the Pharisee was all about image management, doing the right things in front of other people so you're perceived as being spiritual. So they had this whole set of things you should and shouldn't do, and one of the things you shouldn't do is to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus is kind of coming right back at them because the heart of that commandment is from God, but the Pharisees had turned it into a public image. I'm going to look impressive. And so the, the text in this first part tells us there was a man that had a, uh, a shriveled hand or a, uh, he was couldn't use his hand. And it said Jesus said uh, for him to come come in front of the synagogue. Because he was going to heal it. And and he knew the Pharisees. Were mad about that. Think of it. He's going to heal somebody's hand and the Pharisees. are, And Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, OK. Is it good? Is it good of me to do good on the Sabbath to heal this man's hand? Is that a good thing? Or is it evil to heal this man's hand on the Sabbath? Instead, he looked at the Pharisees, and they said nothing. You know, it was just crickets. And then it said, and I love this about Jesus, he looked at them angrily and very sad. Because he was angry, and it said he was angry and very saddened by the hardness of their hearts. They were so stubborn in the way of religion that they couldn't even see the mercy of God to heal somebody. And I love the fact Jesus was no two-dimensional emotional being. He was angry, and the tense of the word is he was irritated at the depth of his soul, but he was also sad that they were so callous. And the word hardness of heart really is, comes from the word callous. They were so callous of heart they couldn't even be tenderized by the mercy of God to heal somebody. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the man's hand, and it's totally healed. 
the next verse says they're going to get together to try to figure out how to kill him because he healed somebody. Not because he healed somebody, but because he was rocking the boat and messing with the religious status quo. You see, because the enemy of your spiritual life or my spiritual life, the enemy of spiritual life is religion gone bad. It's not the world making us bad. It's when religion turns into image management, all these behaviors are supposed to adhere to, that becomes death to your soul. Now, of course there's things we're supposed to do. We're obeying something. We're supposed to obey certain things. We're supposed to be honest and sexually pure and have integrity. But the Pharisees have made it a whole other category of how you look and how you talk and what you do and don't do, and it became this heavy burden on people. And Jesus was saying, that's not, that's not God. God is merciful. So that was the first scenario where Jesus basically writes his own death sentence. Because the, very, the whole rest of the book is like this journey to the cross. Next passage in this one. Somebody says to Jesus, you are the son of God. Okay, don't say it out loud, but who, who, who said that? What was the circumstance? Okay, maybe it was Peter. Peter might have said, you're the son of God. Maybe it was disciples. Maybe it was the man who was healed. You're the son of God. This is another scene in the, in the chapter. You know who said this? It was a demon that said this to Jesus. You are the son of God. And you might think, well, what, what's that all about? Why is, and the Bible calls them unclean spirits, but we understand it to be kind of the demonic, the, the spirits uh, real, unclean spirits that not supporting the, the mission of God and Jesus, but are part of the, the devil's minions. And it said in the next passage, Jesus was gathering, huge crowds were following. He was healing people, and he was casting out demons from people. And it said whenever the people with demonic influence saw him, they shrieked and shouted, you are the son of God. Now, they weren't, they weren't saying that in a worshipful way. Because in that culture, in that day, it was thought that if you know somebody's name and character then you can hold kind of incantation power over them. It was a power play on the part of the demon to see if they could win something. Because the thought is if you know somebody and you say their name and you know their, the depth of their character, you can have power over them. That's why in this particular passage, Jesus tells the demons, be quiet, and he commands them not to tell people who he was. Because he didn't want the demons to be witnessing on his behalf because they were doing it in a spirit of mockery and control not in a spirit of truth and worship. So again, not only does Jesus confront the authority of the Pharisees, now he's spiritual authority confronting spiritual reality. Authority confronts authority again. The next scene in, this, in the book is uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Somebody says about Jesus, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's lost his senses. Some versions translate, he's insane. Again, don't say it, but any idea who said that about Jesus? Surely it was the Pharisees. Surely it was like the religious leaders. Surely it was somebody that just didn't like Jesus. The people who said he's out of his mind was his brothers and his sisters. Like, wow, that's like misunderstood. Because you know, Jesus' mother was Mary. 
Joseph, father of all, all Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. But Mary and Joseph had other children after that. And I, I don't know what it's like growing up with Jesus. He wins all the time. I mean, every time you have an argument, no, he didn't. Yeah, no, no. I mean, he's always right. Can you imagine growing up with a perfect sibling? But he was kind. He was. But it said that he's he's gathering his crowd. He's in the house and he's healing people. And it said his mother, Mary, and his brothers and sisters were outside. He's out of his mind. Now, we don't know that Mary said that. It just said they said he's out of his mind. Now, did, did they really think he was crazy? Or do you think, and I think this is probably what the text would support, they were afraid of the religious establishment was so strong, they didn't want to get sucked into this rejection and condemnation that their brother Jesus was going to be getting. So, oh, he's just out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's crazy. They're maybe saving their own skin. And we don't know, we don't, nothing was said of what Mary said. We didn't know she was there. Maybe Mary just didn't, wasn't able to persuade her other adult children not to do this. We don't know. But talk about rejection. Talk about misunderstood. It's his family who's saying publicly, it's crazy, crazy. And it says they actually tried to get him to bring him home. Because they're feeling the tension. They're feeling the drum beats to pain and suffering, and they don't want any part of that. And uh, if we're honest, we don't blame them. We, uh, let's not call them bad people. We may have done the same thing, like, wow, this is really getting tense, and he's kind of picking too many fights, and we got to kind of get him home and calm him down, and he needs to calm down. He can still be Jesus, but he needs to not create so much tension. Because, yeah, you know, all right, yeah, let's be Christians, but let's not rock the boat. Let's follow Jesus, but don't really mess up the system. That's not Christianity. Following Jesus means if he asks you to rock the boat, not rock the boat in a jerk-like way, not to be just a jerk. But if, you're, if God asks you to do something that others around you will not like or may they may feel exposed by it because everybody else is doing it but you're choosing not to because you're choosing to have the freedom of holiness you're not going to always get applause from the people who won't follow jesus sometimes they're going to be like why don't you why don't you be like us why don't you why don't you get back in line don't take this christian thing too serious just be kind of normal like the rest of us jesus was not normal he doesn't call you to be normal so then that, that was one. The next scene. Next scene, now somebody's saying about Jesus publicly, he's possessed by Satan. He has an unclean spirit. Now this wasn't his family. Um, this actually was back to the Pharisees again. Because Jesus is casting out all these demons. He's driving demons out of people. Again, that's a weird meter thing. So it's like, wow, that's really kind of weird. It is weird, but we believe it's true. We believe spiritual, there's spiritual realities that are true. And they're saying, well, we know how Jesus is doing this. He's because they, they, they didn't deny that he was setting people free from demonic influence. He didn't. They weren't denying that these people who had all kinds of uh, bondage in their lives all of a sudden were free of bondage. They weren't denying that. They just couldn't figure out where he was getting the power. So instead of saying it was from God, they actually said, 
Oh, no, he's doing it because he's a demon and he has the power of a demon to drive out other demons. And that's this is where Jesus quoted Abraham Lincoln. Actually, it's the other way around where Abraham Lincoln said a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus when Jesus was telling him, why if, if I have Satan in me, why would Satan drive out Satan? The house divided it among itself won't stand. Of course, I'm not doing it by the power of Satan. I'm doing it by the power of God. And Jesus didn't do it with a defensive voice. But he's saying, you're telling people I'm driving Satan out with Satan? Well, why, would, why would a house fight against itself? Of course, I'm not going to do that. It's interesting, too. I was at a, I can't remember exactly where this was, someplace in town. They have a bunch of quotes on the wall, famous people. And the quote is, a house divided itself cannot stand, and it says Abraham Lincoln. I kind of wanted to cross it out with a pen and write Jesus, because he said it. Lincoln was quoting Jesus. But so again, misunderstanding. I mean, these are powerful religious leaders telling the people, he's possessed by an unclean spirit. I mean, they're trying to earn they can to discourage people from following him. So Jesus is misunderstood by his family. He's misunderstood by the powers that be rejection they want to kill him and then the last one so this passage is right in the middle of it so let me just kind of so they decide they want to destroy him he's casting out demons who are saying you're the son of god in a contemptuous controlling way so boom 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 his family's saying he's crazy boom 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 Pharisees saying he has an unclean spirit, he's demonic, he's evil. So let me back up for a second before I look at this passage and say this. Remember who I said a few weeks ago that Mark, Mark wrote this probably 30 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He was writing it initially because the Christians in Rome, from what we understand, were asking him, hey, can you write down all these stories from the life of Jesus that you heard that Peter told you. That's kind of the sense how we, we feel like that, that, that that's how the sense how that happened. Because the Christians in Rome were undergoing some degree of persecution. Things were getting a little tough for them there. Peter had been uh, crucified by the Romans because he followed Jesus. The Christians in Rome were being accused of being kind of social outcasts, anti-social, anti-government, not nationalistic. So they were feeling a little bit out of place, and they were trying to figure out if they had the right end of the stick of Christianity because life was not easy for them. It was actually getting harder. They were experiencing being misunderstood and rejected. So that's who's getting, that's who this is going to. And it's not only going to, it's going to us because if we're following Jesus, you will be misunderstood. And you will have some degree of social rejection because of what you choose to do and what you follow. But in the middle of all this, Mark and, and Mark puts the story. This Mark didn't write chronologically; he wrote kind of thematically. In the middle of this, he puts the account of the twelve disciples that Jesus called. And I think Mark did this on purpose because he's wanting them, he's wanting us to see if you follow Jesus, this is what you're getting yourself into. Because it said he, he went to Jesus went to a mountainside and he. He called the 12, and it names all the 12 disciples. And I could name them for you, but I'd have to sing a song that I learned when I was a kid. And I, you know, there were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, his brother, John. I won't finish it, but I could. So he names them all. Even Judas, names Judas. 
And then it said he called them, for, and this was their job description that he called them to do. First of all, it says that they were called apostles. The word apostle is literally the Greek word that means sent ones. They were sent out by him. So in that sense, any, every single one of us who's a follower of Jesus are apostles. We are sent by Jesus into the world to bring hope, redeeming, and healing. Hope, redemption, and healing. So they were sent ones, and this is what they were sent to do. They were to be with him. That was job description number one. You've got to hang out with Jesus. You've got to interact with him. You've got to talk to him. You've got to listen to him. They spent time with him. That's kind of our job description number one. That's why we read the Bible or pray or try to listen to Jesus, because we're supposed to, we want the spirit of Jesus to be driving what we're doing, not the spirit of religion. They were to be with him. He sent them out to preach. That was their second part of their job description. You need to proclaim and talk about Jesus. And he doesn't mean that in a guilt kind of inducing way. Go tell, knock on your neighbor's door. But it was like talk openly about what Jesus has done in your life. And the last thing is he gives them authority to cast out demons. Well, before and behind this particular part of the story, there's demons all over the place. There's all kinds of unclean spirits and people who are stuck in bondage of all kinds of nasty habits and nasty things. So in the middle of all this, he's saying, Mark is saying, okay, those who are called to be the sent ones of Jesus, and in this case it's 12 apostles, but in this case it's all of us, this is what we're called to do. We have authority, the Bible tells us, um, to be agents of deliverance of people from the power of Satan. Now, again, let's not be weird meter and let's not think about uh, what's the movie where the person's head turns around on a swivel or whatever. I'm not, you know, what's that called? Whatever. But, uh, but sometimes the biggest tool of Satan is to convince us that it's all this drama, strange, weird. And but Satan's really subtle, and there's people that you... Maybe in your family or in your house or in your dorm or people in your f- you know that are under the power of Satan. See, the word demonized, it doesn't mean they're, Satan is in them talking all the time. It means they're being harassed. They're being under the influence of Satan in some areas. So, so people that have addictions, I think, really are being harassed by the power of Satan. So it doesn't mean that you're, you know, always speaking in guttural tones and your head spinning around. But we have, Jesus gives the disciples authority, which we are his disciples, to be agents of delivering people from the power of Satan in their lives. So you might think, well, I don't know anybody who's demonic or demonized. I would say you probably do, and you probably don't even realize it. I probably do and don't realize it. I, there are my neighbors, I, there are neighbors I have, there are people I know that I'm sure are under some degree of the enslaving power of Satan in their lives. So you might say, well, what do I do? Am I supposed to go, you know, pour oil on their heads and hit them on the forehead and knock them over? You could just pray for them. You could pray by the authority of the Spirit of Jesus in you. Jesus, would you set this person free from whatever binds them up? You set them free. So you're if one of these followers of Jesus and you're in Rome and you're reading this for the first time and you're experiencing being misunderstood and rejected and being accused of being antisocial, and you're thinking, I don't know if this is the right thing. This doesn't seem like, I mean, it's not going well. I thought following Jesus was supposed to be really good. 
And then you're reading this, you're like, no, maybe this is what following Jesus is about. It's about confrontation of the authority of Jesus against the authority of this world, the authority of Satan, and how does one force break the force of the other to bring people free? I mean, if you know me at all, you'll know that my, one of my favorite analogies is the whole analogy of Normandy. Normandy, World War II, is when the Allied forces kind of go in mass across the English Channel to go into France to set people free who were enslaved by the power of the German regime. So Jesus sends people, he sends us into the lives of other people who were held enslaved by the power of the regime of Satan. So maybe it's simply just praying for people you know that aren't, don't know Jesus. Praying for people you know that you know they have issues, addictions, or whatever. Not praying for them in a pitying way, a contemptuous way, but you're praying because Jesus has given you the authority to ask him to do something in that person's life to set them free. That's the authority you and I have. We have that authority. Jesus gave us that authority. So at, at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. That's his overarching sermon. And then the whole book of Mark is unpacking what that means. So let me just kind of review and then we'll be done here. So far in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. And here's what that means. Jesus does this. Jesus calls ordinary people to join his mission. Jesus teaches with refreshing authority. He delivers people from the power of Satan. He heals physical sickness. He amazes people. That word shows up so many times in the Gospel of Mark. He amazes people. Jesus rejects the temptation to be popular. He focuses on the mission of God. He touches the untouchables. He offers forgiveness. He socializes and eats with scum. So the Pharisees called the sinners Jesus hung out with. Jesus offends the spirit of religiosity. Jesus is misunderstood and rejected, but remains wildly free, peaceful, and joyful. So the kingdom of God coming, the, the power of God coming into the world that Jesus was talking about brings those kind of, it brings healing and power and deliverance, but it also brings suffering and rejection and challenge. So we're agents of God bringing the kingdom of God into Bloomington. You are all agents of healing and power and deliverance. Touching the untouchables. That's what we're called to do. But with that comes challenge. You're, offend, you're going to offend people. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be accused of things that you know aren't true. You're going to be misunderstood. But that's the power of Jesus. If you want, I'll say this, and this I'm saying this to myself, because this is something I have to remind myself all the time. If you want the power of Jesus expressed and manifested in your life, I mean the power of the Holy Spirit bringing um, abnormal levels of joy and courage and love, the power of bringing healing into the lives of people, whether it's physical healing or emotional healing that God does through you. If you want the power to set people free from demonic addictions and influences in their life, if you want that, if you want to be that kind of person who overflows with the power and the love and the courage of God, you can't take that without also rejection, misunderstanding, and challenge and difficulty. It's not like you can order that meal and tell them you don't want this. I don't want that side of fries, please. They say, no, we bring, it has to be all together. It's all one dish. 
And I'm guessing every single person here would love to be the kind of person that's described in the Bible who has the power of the Holy Spirit in them and brings healing and deliverance to people. The other thing we really don't want, but you can't have one without the other. And so the challenge of Jesus would be, are you all in? And I think Jesus wants to do that in all of our lives. But the fear we have of being offensive to people or antisocial or misunderstood, the fear of people's opinions is a powerful thing that keeps us from being open to whatever Jesus wants in our lives. So when we sing, and I was doing this when we were singing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome. And I was doing this kind of like a funnel. Okay, I want, the, I want more of the Holy Spirit. I'm also inviting the challenge, the so misunderstanding, and the suffering that Jesus came to. But I'm, all, but I'm inviting incredible supernatural power at the same time. Is that what you want? That's the question. Is that what you want? So let's pray. Jesus, you are the most... To steal a phrase from a commercial, you are the most interesting man in the world. You are the most unique man in the world. You are the most powerful man in the world. And we believe, of course, you're more than a man. Uh, you're the son of God. You're, you're God himself. And we want to follow the real Jesus, not the watered-down Jesus, not the soft Jesus, we want to worship the Jesus who is strong and powerful and peaceful and joyful and compassionate and merciful. And we want that. And so, Jesus, would you remove whatever obstacles of fear in us that keep us from having a fullness of what you want to pour into our lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we finish every Sunday with...